Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Veiled Violence. This podcast is created by Alexis Gorfine, Addie Millman, Becca Nickerson, and Grace Connor as a project for our senior history course, Violence, War, and Peace. In this podcast, we will examine the history of emotional abuse and how it manifests in modern day, specifically in our high school. Before we begin, we want to warn all listeners that some of the content in this podcast may be triggering to those who have experienced or know someone who has experienced emotional abuse. If you need help for yourself or a loved one, please look at the podcast description for some wonderful organizations who can provide help. We would also like to establish a working definition of emotional abuse as it will be used in this episode. According to the United States Department of Justice, emotional abuse, also known as psychological violence or mental abuse, is, quote, undermining an individual's sense of self-worth and or self-esteem, end quote, and includes actions in any relationship such as, quote, constant criticism, diminishing one's abilities, name-calling, causing fear by intimidation, and forcing isolation from family, friends, or school and or work, end quote, along with other damaging actions. Although this definition is intended more for the emotional violence that falls under domestic abuse between partners, spouses, and other more intimate relationships, psychological violence is prevalent in all forms. It can occur to anyone in any form of relationship, whether that be romantic, familial, platonic, professional, or otherwise. Furthermore, it can occur to anyone of any socioeconomic background, regardless of gender and or sexual orientation. In this episode, created and researched by Becca Nickerson, we will discuss emotional abuse specifically between teenagers in both romantic and platonic relationships. This episode will cover the general benefits of stable friendships, how gender affects the formation of friendships, the discrepancies in the way gender influences social interaction, and the development of empathy and decision-making skills in teenagers. This podcast is complemented by personal, anecdotal reflections from students who have experienced both emotional abuse and friendships as well as romantic relationships. Because of the sensitive nature of the stories we will be discussing and our desire to maintain the anonymity of those who have so graciously given their testimonies, I will be reading the excerpts from their interviews. A study by Mariska Vanderhorst and Hilda Kopp titled How Friendship Network Characteristics Influence Subjective Well-Being states that, quote, having social relations is a characteristic which is considered to be an important source for subjective well-being, that is, well-being defined by the individuals themselves, end quote. In that strong interpersonal relationships enhance social trust, increase one's ability to cope with various types of stress and illness, and stimulate growth in social support. When strong interpersonal relationships are absent, so are their benefits. Our first story deals with the experience of one student, the abuse she received from one of her close friends, and the effects of that abuse. The victim was bullied by her best friend. Someone who was supposed to provide her with comfort and support eventually became her abuser. The abuse started in sixth grade and lasted for five years. She describes it as, quote, online abuse, text, email, critiquing me at school, verbal and physical abuse, end quote. And though she noticed something was wrong right away, she didn't report it, going on to say, quote, it silenced me in a sense for a long time because I didn't want her to get in any trouble because that's the type of person I am. So I didn't want to say anything because she was in the same friend group I was in, end quote. She tried to keep her head up saying, quote, I thought, that if I didn't say anything and I didn't show that it was affecting me, she would see it wasn't affecting me. Obviously, I was afraid of what would happen if I said anything, but I also didn't want her to get in any trouble, end quote. 
She went on to describe the emotional impact and implications of the abuse. Quote, I felt excluded in a sense. I felt like an outcast for a long time, end quote. And then further expanding with, quote, it's affected every relationship I have now and what I'm like as a person, end quote. Despite the extremity of both the psychological and physical abuse she suffered, her approach to her abuser was incredibly forgiving. Quote, I came to realize that whatever she was doing, she was going through something, end quote. She, until this year, didn't fully open up about the extent of the abuse, saying that, quote, no one has ever really known, end quote. When I asked her how she thought emotional abuse was treated, she said, quote, I think for the most part, it's kept quiet, end quote. According to a study by David Buxton, Mona Patel-Potter, and Jeff Bostick, titled Coping Strategies for Child Bully Victims, 46% of high school students will experience rumors and exclusionary abuse, 29% will experience hitting and physical abuse, 66% will experience taunting and name-calling, and 49% will experience being laughed at. This instability within friendships and social relations strips adolescents of the benefits of strong interpersonal relationships and jeopardizes their development and ability to foster healthy, productive friendships and relationships in the future. The evolution of adolescent friendships and relationships is integral to understanding the dynamics and social constructions which play into how emotional and psychological abuse manifests. A study titled Adolescent Perceptions of Problematic Heterosocial Situations, a focus group study by Rachel L. Grover and Douglas W. Nangle covers how gender influences friendships, stating, quote, a unique study using real-time monitoring of adolescent peer interactions determined that, in contrast to high school freshmen who spent 44% of their time in same-sex groups, seniors spent 21% of their time in same-sex groups and 24% in other sex dyads. Similarly, across a two-year period between the 6th and the 8th grades, Crockett found that the percentage of teens that reported talking with other sex peers on the phone increased from 50 to 70%. In a study examining friendship networks, Cairns discovered that 7th graders are involved in mixed-sex friend groups, whereas 4th graders were not. Furthermore, these changes reflect more than structural alterations in interaction patterns, as the intimacy of other sex friendships greatly increases between the 5th and the 11th grades. Our second story confronts the issues of emotional abuse in romantic relationships. Our subject begins by saying, quote, it started after I broke up with a person. Well, no, it started to get bad when I was in a relationship and it was long distance. The first year was okay, but he started showing some signs of being a little bit controlling and a little bit needy, but I kind of ignored them, end quote. She rationalized his behavior by telling herself that it was, quote, just because he loved me so much, end quote. Things then began to take a turn for the worse. Quote, it started getting really bad, probably into our second school year of doing long distance. The beginning of our second school year being long distance, things got a little bit weird. I felt like he was being more controlling than I would have liked. I was really stressed about college. I said, I really need a lot of space right now in order to get things done on my end. It was stressful enough balancing the friendships and the work that I was seeing in person every day, and then also someone online, over text, FaceTime, whatever. 
It was too much, and I wasn't getting things done, and I felt like I needed to pull back a little bit. I said, I still care about you very much, and I still love you, and I still want to be in a relationship. I just need more space during these next few months. He took not very kindly to that idea. He said that I didn't love him, and that if I loved him, I would make more of an effort. And all he asked was that I say I love you every day to him. End quote. She maintained this for a while, but it didn't last. Quote, there was one day I didn't go on my phone, and he freaked out at me. End quote. After that, quote, things started to get really, really bad. End quote. He began to exhibit clear signs of an abuser. Quote, it would go back and forth between, I love you, I need you, you're the only thing that's important to me, you've made my life so much better, to, you're a whore, you're a slut, you're a bitch, no one loves you. I only kept you around so long because I wanted to have sex with you. You're ugly. Nasty, nasty stuff. There were months where I would believe what he was saying when he said he loved me, end quote. But their relationship was, quote, never healthy, end quote. Quote, I asked for space. He accused me of trying to see other people, of being a whore, not loving him, saying if I really loved him, I would text him more. I would be with him more. He got very, very upset when I wouldn't go to his school to see him. Obviously, the being possessive ruined our romantic relationship. But I consider the abuse more of what happened afterwards. I was very, very scared for a very long time. He threatened to reveal things about my family that were either unflattering or simply untrue. Saying that my family abused me or abused my little brother. My parents were bad people, that I was a bad person, that I was a whore. He threatened to publicize private pictures, private messages. He sent a series of very private romantic messages I had sent him my sophomore year to a boyfriend I had this year. But mostly, I was scared for my family. I mean, no one likes to hear that they're only a sex thing, that they're ugly, fat, not smart, don't deserve to go to college, don't deserve to play sports. Every insecurity I had, he exploited. He would tell me, you're unlovable, no one likes you. You're not worthy of friendship. Everyone hates you. I'm still scared that when we're in the same town, that may bring up some anger or frustration in him. Like if he sees me again, he'll potentially go after my family. Despite everything, I think I've come to terms with who I am. My biggest mistake was that I couldn't block him because he had been such an important part of my life for two years. I couldn't just go no contact. So I sat at the other end of the phone and listened to the abuse every night for probably two months. I think it's a lot more common than it should be because we see this kind of treatment romanticized in popular culture a lot. Like modern portrayals of romance glorify a very intense, possessive kind of love. End quote. A possible contributor to this aspect of abuse is a lack of empathy. An article regarding brain development and empathy in teenagers titled Inside Your Teenager's Scary Brain by Tamsin McMahon states that, quote, at the heart of our understanding of brain development are two basic concepts, gray matter and white matter. Gray matter consists of neurons, the brain cells that form the building blocks of the brain. White matter, axons, are the connections that form between gray matter, helping to move information from one area of the brain to the next. While gray matter growth is indeed almost completely finished by the age of six, white matter, the wiring between cells, 
continues to develop well into the 20s. In fact, Jensen says that wiring is only about 80% complete by the age of 18. The last area of the brain to be hooked up with white matter is the prefrontal cortex, which controls insight, judgment, self-awareness, and empathy, the brain's so-called executive functions." End quote. Another study titled Competitiveness, Gender, and Adjustment Among Adolescents by David R. Hibbard and Duan Burmester discusses how different types of competitiveness present themselves and how that association comments on pre-existing socially constructed gender roles and how it relates to empathy and aggression. Quote, two types of competitiveness were studied, competing to win, CW, to dominate others, and competing to excel, CE, to surpass personal goals. Competitiveness may be linked to the interpersonal traits of empathy and aggression. Competing to win presumably requires at least a temporary suppression of empathetic concern for opponents' feelings and outcomes. In that empathy plays a central role in the feminine communal style by promoting connectedness, we hypothesize that CW is more strongly associated with lack of empathy among females than males. By the same token, overt aggression is consistent with the masculine agenic orientation, but not the feminine communal orientation, and thus we hypothesize that CW is more strongly associated with perceived aggressiveness among females than males. Specifically, we expect that depressive symptoms and low self-esteem are more strongly linked to CW among females than males because females high in CW might feel that they have failed to live up to the communal ideal of being, quote, nice, end quote, to others, and because their overtly competitive tendencies may garner social disapproval that eventuates in depressive symptoms. On the other hand, if one is talking about competing to win or show dominance over others, then females seem to pay a socio-emotional price. Perhaps the cultural assumption should be more specific. Competing to win is detrimental for females, adjustment, but less so for males, and competing to excel is beneficial to the well-being of both genders." End quote. According to an article by Sue Schellenbarger in the Wall Street Journal titled, the Teenage Empathy Gap, Vital Social Skill Ebb and Flows in Adolescent Boys, How to Cultivate Sensitivity. Quote, Adolescents' brains work particularly hard on perspective taking. Teens make heavier use than adults of the medial prefrontal cortex, says Sarah Jane Blakemore, a professor of cognitive neuroscience at the University of College London. That may be because understanding others' viewpoints takes more conscious effort for teens while it becomes automatic for adults, Dr. Blakemore says. Perspective taking continues to develop through age 21. The decline in effective empathy among young teenage boys may spring at least partly from a spurt during puberty in testosterone, sparking a desire for dominance and power, says a study in developmental psychology. Boys who are more mature physically showed less empathy than others. Boys also feel pressure from peers and some adults to, quote, act like a man, end quote which they often define as being detached, tough, funny, and strong, says Rosalind Wiseman, Boulder, Colorado author of Masterminds and Wingmen, a new book about teen boys. They may suppress feelings of empathy so they can join in joking and teasing with peers, she says. Quote, humor is a social glue among boys, and empathy would be a break on what they can and cannot joke about, end quote. So some kids, quote, stop listening to their gut, end quote. Gender roles and gendered behavioral patterns contribute heavily to how abuse manifests itself in adolescence, as Alexis covered previously. 
According to dating abuse statistics by an organization called Love is Respect, one in three adolescents in the U.S. is victim of physical, sexual, emotional, or verbal abuse from a dating partner, a figure that far exceeds rates of other types of youth violence. Girls and young women between the ages of 16 and 24 experience the highest rate of intimate partner violence, almost triple the national average. Among female victims of intimate partner violence, 94% of those aged 16 to 19 and 70% of those 20 to 24 were victimized by a current or former boyfriend or girlfriend. Violent behavior often begins between the ages of 12 and 18. The severity of intimate partner violence is often greater in cases where the pattern of abuse was established in adolescence. Nearly half, 43%, of dating college women report experiencing violent and abusive relationship behaviors. In addition, college students are not equipped to deal with dating abuse. 57% say it's difficult to identify and 58% say they don't know how to help someone who's experiencing it. One in three, 36%, dating college students has given a dating partner their computer, online access, email, or social network passwords, and these students are more likely to experience digital dating abuse. Perhaps an even more disturbing figure is that 81% of parents believe teen dating violence is not an issue or admit they don't know if it's an issue. And though 82% of parents feel confident they can recognize the signs if their child's experiencing dating abuse, a majority of parents, 58%, could not correctly identify all the warning signs of abuse. In closing, it is important for us to keep in mind the general benefits of stable friendships, how gender affects the formation of friendships, the inconsistencies in the way gender influences social interaction, and the development of empathy in adolescence. The effects of emotional and psychological abuse in these crucial developmental years are deeply felt and far-reaching, and we must do all that we can to ameliorate this problem. Thank you for listening.